0: Operation Warp Speed, they're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On, the insiders, the influencers, the insights.
1: Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors?
3: The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Powell, Fed Chairman Jay Powell signals the Fed will keep buying bonds even as the outlook improves. Plus, we are on standby for President Biden, who's holding a bilateral meeting with Justin Trudeau. We'll give you the latest uh, on that front. And the Republican infighting continues. Liz Cheney, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, says Republicans need to recognize the damage done by Trump. We've got a lot to get through. Just uh, if you're joining us, a breaking news red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal just within the last couple of minutes. GameStop CFO Jim Bell resigns. Again, GameStop CFO Jim Bell has resigned. This, according to Bloomberg, GameStop announcing CFO change in a statement issued today. They announced that Jim Bell, executive vice president and chief financial officer, will be resigning from his roles on March 26th of this year. A leading executive search firm has been retained to support the process. Uh, But again, this comes just after, obviously, the intense scrutiny that Washington has placed Uh, on gamestop in recent weeks we begin tonight with the big story the continuing battle over the economic stimulus and the pace of the economic recovery federal reserve chairman jerome powell testified before the senate banking committee earlier today he signaled that the central bank was nowhere close to pulling back on its support for the pandemic damaged u.s economy even as he voiced expectations for a return to more normal. I've got the sound on this. Let's play the tape.
3: The economy is a long way from our employment and inflation goals, and it is likely to take some time for substantial further progress to be achieved. The economic recovery remains uneven and far far from complete, and the path ahead is highly uncertain.
0: Powell went on to suggest that developments point to improved outlook for later this year. Here's sound on that.
3: While we should not underestimate the challenges we currently face, developments point to an improved outlook for later this year. In particular, ongoing progress in vaccinations should help speed the return to normal activities.
0: Meanwhile, he did somewhat weigh into an ongoing policy debate uh, that has gone beyond Washington, D.C. And he said that he doesn't see the spending rise having lasting inflation impact. Here he is.
3: We expect readings on inflation to move up that's called base effects that'll be a temporary effect and and it, it won't really signal anything you could see spending pick up pretty substantially in the second half of the year and that would be a good thing of course but it could also put upward pressure on prices it doesn't seem likely that that would result in very large increases or that they would be persistent.
0: I want to welcome into this conversation Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shantzano and Travis Norton. He is a shareholder at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farmer, and Shrek, the former general counsel to the House Judiciary and Financial Services Committee, and a former staff director to Senator Tim Scott on the Banking Subcommittee. Uh, Jeannie, Travis, welcome to the program. Travis, I'll start with you. Do you share? or do you see any concerns uh, that Fed Chairman Jay Powell perhaps doesn't feel are there, especially about the effects of increased spending?
4: Uh, thanks. Good to be with you. The um, I, I think there's just a ton of liquidity floating around this economy right now, and so far that has not shown up in the inflation numbers in a meaningful way. I think... Chair Powell alluded to a 41-bip increase in uh, recent indexes for inflation. But if you just think about all of the areas of this economy that are running so hot right now, uh, virtually everywhere you go uh, that I've been to in the last few months, housing prices are off the charts. Inventory is very low. You look at things like GameStop, the amount of liquidity that was pumped into that, uh, cryptocurrency, and, of course, a $1.6 trillion increase in consumer savings over the COVID era. Uh, it's difficult to see how all of this liquidity in the economy will not come to bear uh, on the inflation number And at some point in the future. Now, whether the Fed's inflation target of just above 2% remains appropriate for this economy in recovery, uh, I don't know. But I certainly find it hard to believe that at some point, all of this uh, liquidity in the economy is not going to come home to roost.
0: You know, Travis, that's a great point. And, and Jeannie, I think when you hear that, and especially fresh off of the, the policy debate that our colleague David Weston had uh, during his interview with uh, the Banking Committee Chairman Sherrod Brown uh, earlier today, I want to play for you this, Jeannie, uh, the sound on what he had to say uh, just after Fed Chairman Jay Powell's hearing. Here he is.
4: It's clear, though, that he thinks we need to go big, as President Biden does, as his predecessor, or one of his, well, his, his immediate predecessor, Janet Yellen, who's now the Treasury Secretary, said, if we don't go big, if we fall short on this Recovery Act, this Repair Act, if we fall short, we um, there will be a scarring, she said, a long-term generational scarring of the economy.
0: But it's fascinating to hear Travis's perspective, Jeannie, but also... Larry Summers' perspective on this. And it's just in stark contrast to Chairman Brown and Secretary Yellen
1: it is and it was something that is you know, we always hear in these hearings but I thought it came through so loud and clear today was that both sides were trying to get Powell to support their rationale for mm-hmm. fiscal policy and to support their vision in view of the fiscal stimulus and he tried you know mightily not to take the bait on that you know he tried not to wade into that but in in some way he, you know he did he did uh, to, to a certain extent. And I think what stood out to me in addition to that was the fact that you know, I I was really reminded as I was listening to him of, you know, Mario Cuomo's 1984 Tale of Two Cities speech, because what we're really hearing is a tale of two economies. And Powell seems to me you know, understanding that we really do have two economies here. We have people who are suffering mightily as a result of the economic uh, the economy that's occurred in the wake of the pandemic. and. Others that are going well. And, and one question is, you know, can they create monetary policy for different groups of people that are suffering in this ways? You know, I heard Pat Toomey say, no, they can't. That's up to Congress. But when you got a Congress that's not working so well together, that's a big problem as well. So, so much went into this sort of hearing that I, that, that I wasn't resolved in my mind, even though the market responded positively.
0: You know, it's I got to be candid here, Jeannie. I did not think that Cuomo would come up in the first segment. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that Kevin. it wouldn't be Governor Cuomo. <laughs> no, <laughs> that I'm it would be the that, father. <laughs> you know, you know, and that's. I, I think I should. I'm not going to digress. I can hear our EP <laughs> saying, "Kev, stay on track." Barada's listening,
1: <laughs> and I'm apologizing to Travis right now. Travis, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> here's how it way. played. Let's let's try to here, Here's how it played. Uh, uh, the AP headline, uh, the AP headline says, "Fed Powell, Fed's Powell, recovery incomplete, high inflation, unlikely." The Financial Times, Powell signals, "quote hope for return to more normal conditions." Uh, Bloomberg headline, uh, Powell signals Fed to keep buying bonds even as outlook improves. So I mean, Travis, the the overwhelming majority. Of the coverage has been the economy over the second half of this year is going to be looking to improve. But people are divided. The parties are divided. The policy wonks are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have in the long term.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, remember that there's already been approximately $4 trillion a stimulus relief uh, in five bipartisan bills that's already been enacted, the latest of which was in December 2020. That most of that money from that bill um, was not has not even been allocated or spent yet, and here we are again trying to spend another close to two trillion dollars. What what I think you saw today, Kevin and Jeannie, is a Congress that continues to wrestle with their desire to reimagine what the Fed is. Uh, All of last year, people were, uh, after the CARES Act, people were looking, uh, policymakers in Congress were looking at the Fed to establish lending programs like the Main Street Lending Facility, uh, a facility to buy commercial paper, corporate bonds on the primary and secondary market. The Fed became uh, a much larger player on the stage last year in the recovery. Now that those programs have been pulled back, I think Congress is used to the Fed uh, coming in and stepping into a role where you're right, partisan gridlock uh, results in not many things you know being able to get done in a bipartisan way. And the Fed, what you heard Chair Powell say today, is basically i 'm not the referee here on fiscal policy as much as you want me to be. The things that I do and the tools that I have in my tool chest. Uh, you know, cause the ocean level to rise and fall. But that's true for all boats. And all of these questions about wealth inequality and income inequality, and the uh, disparate impact of this uh, COVID era on black and brown communities and, and communities of color and, and women in the workplace, that's really for fiscal policy. That's the provenance of Article One. And you, Congress should be dealing with it. And if you can't deal with it, don't look to me. I'm the Fed.
0: Let's take a listen to what President Biden had to say uh, with the White House domestic policy advisor, Susan Rice. They held a virtual roundtable today with black essential workers. And at one point during the event, I was struck by this, the President Biden repeated his push for the stimulus, $1,400 stimulus checks. Take a listen. Here's the sound on that.
4: We're going to make sure you get that extra $1,400 check during the pandemic um, that uh, both parties had said they support it. Even the past president said he strongly supported it. We just got to get it done now.
0: It's really fascinating to see how the final negotiations on this are going to continue to intensify. We're hearing that the House vote will still be likely on Friday, which then pushes it to the Senate for next week. And that's where the issue pertaining to minimum wage and Senate, budge, Senate Budget Senate Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders, uh, as well as Senators Romney and Tom Cotton, who are out. Uh, pushing uh, an increase in in minimum wage. We're going to talk about that coming next. We're going to dive into the dynamics of the Senate with the panel. My name is Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg.
3: is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
0: My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio with an all-star panel. We've got Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno and Travis Norton, who is a former staff director to Republican Senator Tim Scott. How's the senator been, Travis?
4: Uh, He's great. He's promoted. Is he going to run for president?
0: (laughs) I just go right for it. You know. I have
4: no idea. I, I hope he does. He's a wonderful man.
0: What's he promoting? Maybe we can have him on the show.
4: You know, uh, he promotes an opportunity agenda where he looks for ways to invest in uh, marginalized communities from a conservative. Uh, that's exactly right. A Jack new Kemp. bill introduced
0: in the Virginia Senate. Would with- but I'm hearing a little bit of audio, but we just tweaked it. OK, uh, back to the uh, dynamics of the minimum wage debate, which I find fascinating. It really does come up with what Senator Tim Scott has been uh arguing it, albeit in a very different way. He's argued, he's taken the Jack Kemp approach and arguing for economic opportunity zones in more uh, underserved communities uh, in our cities as a means of attracting business. And the debate that has ignited within the Senate right now amidst this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill has been rising on the minimum wage. Travis, in the last couple of minutes, I just got an email from moveon.org. An attack email, as they're known in the biz. And it's attacking Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Move On, of course, is a progressive group. Uh, and they're saying that. They're saying at least two Democratic senators are putting the bill at risk, saying they won't support increasing the minimum wage, even though it would lift nearly one million people out of poverty and increase pay for a stunning 21 percent of U.S. workers. Now, obviously, uh, they're taking a look using progressive numbers, but it underscores just how much of a divide there is between centrists and the far left. Does it not, Travis?
4: It absolutely does, and you saw over the weekend Senator Sanders, progressive independent senator, caucuses with Democrats from Vermont, uh, continuing to call uh, for a. $15. We can say Bernie. Oh, Bernie. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, Uncle Bernie, calling for uh, a fifteen dollars minimum wage to be in this bill. Uh, he has said that he will get a ruling from the Senate parliamentarian tomorrow as to whether that provision passes muster under the so-called Bird Rule. Uh, the Bird Rule, not to bore your listeners with arcane procedure, but. Uh, in a fast track procedure that the Democrats are using to pass this COVID relief bill, uh, the Senate is not allowed to put policy riders that don't have a close nexus to budgetary impact. So the question is whether uh, requiring private sector employers to pay their workers $15 minimum wage per hour uh, is going to, is central enough to the budget that they can do it in this bill. Um, The Congressional Budget Office, of course, nonpartisan scorekeeper for Congress, has estimated that doing so would uh, uh, cost 1.4 million jobs in this economy, which has already seen one out of five retail and restaurant businesses close their doors forever. Um, It would, however, lift 900,000 people out of poverty. So I think the question for Senators Manchin and Senator Sinema is really whether this um, $15 minimum wage is something that needs to be done now under the aegis of COVID relief or whether COVID relief could be more targeted uh, and they could then Congress could quickly turn its attention to something like minimum wage, but not in the context of a fast track uh, COVID relief bill.
1: And, and Travis, there's nothing arcane about that. That was fascinating. I love hearing about that. Um, so let me ask you, because you mentioned both Mansion and Cinema, and somebody else that I'm hearing is John Tester, and who has said he refused or declined to say whether he would support it. Um, and as you just mentioned um, about the Senate parliamentarian, he wanted to see if they would approve allowing it to be passed. So are you hearing about John Tester? at all? Because, of course, as we know, Chuck Schumer can't afford to lose any one of these now three people.
4: That's right. Um, you will find throughout this Congress, uh, with Democrats and Republicans split evenly 50-50 uh, in the Senate, you will find that uh, a group of centrists on both sides of the aisle, um, the three that you just mentioned on the Democratic side, mansion Cinema from Arizona, Uh, john tester from montana and on the republican side susan collins of maine lisa murkowski in uh, alaska and even senator romney from the conservative state of utah those six are the key senators to watch over the next two years Um, they don't none of them likes to be alone Um, there's a fair amount of i think frustration from the progressive wing of the democratic party at joe manchin at the moment because he in the past few days has announced that he will vote no on one of mm. President Biden's uh, picks near a tandem to be director of the Office of Management and Budget. Let me and so some let of me let, let me jump in, in part- here
0: though because I want to. We, we only have about a minute left, so very quickly. Senators Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton, two Republicans, Utah and Arkansas, they've rolled out a plan to raise the minimum wage to ten dollars an hour over the next four years, but also to tighten enforcement on uh, uh, workers who are are not documented. Is that going to get any support amongst? Uh, Republicans in the caucus?
4: Yeah, I think I think the purpose of having uh, Senator Cotton and Senator Romney roll it out together, it shows you have the conservative wing and the pragmatic wing of the party uh, rolling out a proposal. It may get support, but it's not going to end up uh, in public law. It is something that Republicans can be for. Well, they stand against yeah. a $15 okay. minimum wage proposal.
0: Travis Norton, come back anytime. Thanks so much. Jeannie stays. Uh, I know I got to let you go, Travis. I know you've got a busy, busy schedule. Coming up next, uh, we check in with with uh, one congressman at the center of all of this. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg.
1: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli.
0: Kevin Cirilli coming up this half hour. Congressman Jason Smith, a Republican from Missouri's 8th Congressional District, weighs in on Fed Chairman Jay Powell. And we are monitoring remarks from President Joe Biden this half hour. We are awaiting for his remarks to uh, and I'll bring them to you once we get them. He's uh, meeting with. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But I want to g- welcome into this conversation uh, Congressman Jason Smith. He is a Republican from Missouri. Uh, he's a member of the uh, House Budget Committee. And he was carefully following the Senate Banking Committee hearing today where Fed Chairman Jay Powell uh Testified and and Congressman, I know you have a lot to say this about this, and, and as the top Republican on the Budget Committee in the House, uh, uh, do you agree with Fed Chair Jay Powell's assessment with regards to um, the the effect that a 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus deal would have on the economy?
2: You know, Kevin, uh, this is, I was not in that hearing um, over on that side of the building, but I'll tell you, just like. Um, the CBO said, when you look at the $1.9 trillion package that's going forward, is that by midsummer we're going to hit some of the highest GDP that we have had in 15 years and without any additional stimulus money. So it, it, from my understanding, when Mr. Powell was over there today, he didn't make a recommendation on whether there should be more stimulus money or not, but he did say that the economy was moving in the right direction. Um, but I, I, when you're looking at spending another two trillion dollars, which would be the largest stimulus package in the history of this nation, um, I think that's very concerning.
0: You know, I want to play for you something that uh, my colleague David Weston uh, spoke with Senator Sherrod Brown about, the chairman of the ban- of the Banking Committee in the Senate, uh, and a Democrat from Ohio. And here's what he had to say. Uh, about his interpretation of the hearing and in which he says that the economy is not at a place where the economy can take off. Here's the sound on that.
4: We're not at the place yet where this economy is going to take off. We've been losing jobs in the last couple of months. Um, The GDP might be going up because that's, again, the wealthiest are doing better and better and better. But most people in this country still need help. And we've got to move to do that. I think Chair Powell's testimony today really underscored that.
0: Congressman Jason Smith, a Republican from Missouri's 8th Congressional District, take us to the farm fields of your constituents. How is the heartland feeling right now with regards to where this recovery is as folks are debating this stimulus?
2: Well, it all boils down to the, the politicians and the states that have locked down their their small businesses. The states that have locked down their small businesses has basically resulted in over 100,000 different businesses across this country closing. Um, what the people want is for these lockdowns to end. They want to be able to go back to work. They want their kids to go back to school. And if you look at the states that did not uh, have the, the very aggressive lockdowns, they have some of the lowest unemployment in the country, and they actually have surpluses, and their businesses are doing well. If you look at uh, the states that are needing uh, these tax dollars, and apparently that's why Speaker Pelosi and everyone's trying to bell them out with $510 billion in this COVID package, are the states like California and New York. But look at California and New York. Compare them to the state of Florida, where there's been very minimal lockdowns. But they, the state of Florida has higher populations and seniors. The death rate has been much less, uh, and it's, it's worked. So you look at the state of California and New York, where their policies have definitely resulted in worse unemployment and definitely higher death rates. It's not working.
0: I want to bring into this conversation our Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno, uh, you know Jeannie, I, I think Congressman Smith really captures where the conservative movement is right now with regards to the stimulus and, and I know you 've got questions for the Congressman, but right there I mean you 've got uh, red states saying they don 't want to bail out blue states.
1: That's right, and and we've heard that over and over again, and there's this enormous divide, and I, I agree, I think the representative expresses it beautifully, between people, particularly on the coasts where I, where I am in New York, and, and, and uh, people out in California and other blue areas who disagree vehemently with people in some of those red areas, but Congressman, it's so good to talk to you. I wanted to ask you about a part of the, uh, the uh, American Recovery Plan, which is the enhanced of unemployment benefits. Mm. Those will go up by, if it's passed, which is a big if, still $400 a week through the late August. Do you support that? Or do you think this disincentivizes recipients returning to work as you're talking about reopening the country, hopefully soon?
2: You know, people who have lost their jobs in this uh, pandemic, and because of the, the big lockdowns, they need to make sure that they have assistance. But where the problem and where the debate is between Democrats and Republicans is, is that people who are unemployed should not make more money unemployed through the unemployment benefits than working. And when you add that extra $400 a week, you look at almost half of the people that could be working would make more money on unemployment benefits than working. And so that's where you get most of the the conversation and the debate between um, individuals is that no one should get paid more on unemployment than they would be if they're working. For example, the person who uh, is picking up your trash should not, uh, he, you know, he's picking up your trash. He's an essential employee. But He could actually make more money staying at home on unemployment than picking up your trash that's not what government needs to create and so that's the conversation and the discussion that you had throughout the process in fact out of the 229 amendments that were in order during the nine different committees in this bill that were brought forward only two were adopted in fact Uh, the rest were all voted down but we had amendments to try to fix this problem but it was it was rejected by the House Democrats.
0: You're the fourth gen. Take us to the heartland because I think you know you offer such a unique perspective for a rural Republican. And you're the fourth generation. Correct me if I got this wrong, Congressman uh, Jason Smith. You're the you're the fourth generation owner of a family farm in Missouri. Is that correct?
2: That is correct.
0: So, what effect has this pandemic had on family farms? What effect has this had? And I'm not talking about big farms. I'm talking about ag, like the small farms. How, how has the, the past year impacted rural farmers?
2: You know, there's been all different um, effects that have uh, affected small farmers. Uh, at the very beginning of this pandemic, you saw the, um, the meat packers having issues that, that dealt with actually um, slaughtering and processing um, beef. In fact, that caused the the prices for a lot of a lot of people's ground beef in the store to rise to like seven, eight dollars a pound. However, it caused the cattle prices for farmers to plummet because uh, they could not. The feedlots were full of livestock. Um, the hog producers uh, had had animals that they couldn't send because the processing facilities couldn't slaughter them. So the meat prices went up. However. The prices for the farmers went down, and some in some cases they couldn't sell it. So it definitely had a had a had a huge impact. But that's just from the supply chain when you're looking at it from a farmer's perspective. But of course, every farmer. Um, Usually a farmer's, their sole occupation is not the farm. They also have an additional occupation, whether they were, you know, working at a local small business or they still had their own small business. And so we were very fortunate in the state of Missouri that um, our governor did not have, um, he did not create lockdowns and and we were open for business. And that's why you look at the state of Missouri, we have some of the, the lowest unemployment in the entire nation.
0: You know, let me follow up here, though, because an- another uh, dynamic in terms of, uh, of agriculture has been the supply chain that it has internationally and the effect uh, that China has had with regards to to the supply chain from from America's heartland. What are you hoping to see the Biden administration position is uh, on China trade? with soybeans, with other uh, uh, agricultural commodities that is different from the Trump administration? Or do you hope that they stay uh, along the same path?
2: Uh, I hope the Biden administration keeps China's feet to the fire, because what you saw last summer— And get
0: specific with us, because this is important, especially for agricultural commodities.
2: Okay, for example, the largest purchase ever of soybeans was this past summer by China and the administration kept pushing forward uh there was a certain metric amount uh i i, I can't remember if it was 40. i don't want to say the number okay. uh, but there was an extremely large number that was agreed to by china that they would follow through in agriculture purchases and they've started in that process but it was only like a phase one process so they need to continue to hold that agreement with the chinese with their feet to the fire i don't recall the number off the top of my head. I have it. I just pulled it up. I'll, just If you're listening,
0: you. if you're listening, I just pulled it up on my Bloomberg terminal. Uh, they China had agreed to purchase $40 billion in agricultural purchases over the next two years. And that was in January of 2020. Go ahead, Congressman.
2: Okay. So that's that's a, the $40 billion. So that's what I'm talking about. They need to continue to push forward with that. Uh, you know, everyone wants free and fair trade our farmers can compete with anywhere in the world but we need to make sure it's on a level playing field and and we sometimes have to be a little tough you know i i've served on the trade subcommittee on the ways and means uh committee and was very part very involved in a lot of the the negotiations uh with the u.s and the u.s canada mexico agreement and also with uh, some of the early stages of the Japan agreement, but we have to continue to make sure that our farmers can compete with the rest of the world.
1: And, and Congressman, following up on that, um, it, it's it's interesting. Some of my students have raised the fact that Bill Gates is now the largest farmland owner in the United States, which was a fact that I had not been been uh, privy to until recently. Me neither. And And, and, and he has invested in synthetic meat, and he is talking about moving rich countries to eating synthetic meat only. Is there um, any sort of, you know, feedback in the farming community in in your home state to this sort of movement in that direction?
2: I would say that if you're eating synthetic meats, it's not healthy. Um, It's not been proven, it's very concerning. And I can tell you farmers across um, America is very concerned about anything that's made in a Petri dish. And uh, I think any American, when they're looking at, like, grass-fed beef or, or whatever items, that should be extremely alarming. But, you know, we live in a country that believes in freedom. And if you want to eat something that's been created in a Petri dish, that's your choice. But I think that uh, most uh, farmers... Would not be supportive of eating items in petri dishes.
0: I want to bring this back to China just for a second. Congressman Jason Smith is with us. He is a Republican from Missouri uh, representing representing uh, the, the rural heartland. He's offering us uh, a fascinating perspective in terms of where heartland Republicans are on a host of, di- of these different issues, especially as it relates to U.S. and China trade policies. You know, I, you you alluded to this, and you have been a staunch supporter of former President uh, Trump and the administration and their position and how they negotiated with China. But I gotta ask it: were you disappointed that China, which has only uh, purchased 71% by some estimates, uh, of what they said that they were going to do they haven't followed through i i mean how do you how do you hold china accountable for a phase one trade agreement from the previous administration how do you what policies would you like to see so to make sure that the agricultural industry is not a uh, short by the communist party of china
2: we've got to make sure first our um our administration's not in the pocket of china um, and that is the best way you can hold China held accountable. There's a lot of tools in the toolbox to make sure that um, they're held accountable. And sometimes you've got to reach out and pull those tools out if they're not following through. And uh, one thing that we have found is we can't trust China. We literally can't. Even though whenever President Trump was negotiating with China in their agreements, um, there was always a lot of hesitation and uncertainty amongst the uh, the. The folks in rural America is that of course Chinese need our soybeans. They need our agriculture commodities because they have to feed their citizens. They can't produce, um, um, enough agriculture products to feed, feed everyone in their own country. And so that they have to rely on other countries. Um, so it, it, as we've seen with uh, the pandemic, they haven't been straightforward uh, in making sure that we get the information um, quickly or abruptly um, or accurately. So um, you got to understand who you're working with, and that way you have to uh, base your decisions on and, and follow through accordingly.
0: All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much to Congressman Jason Smith. He is a Republican from Missouri. He is the top Republican, folks, uh, of the House Budget Committee, and he's weighing in on uh, U.S. agriculture in uh, the new Biden administration as it relates to agriculture. Just to reset here, my name is Kevin Cerilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno as we await for remarks from President Biden, who is anticipated to deliver remarks momentarily with. Um, uh with uh canadian prime minister uh justin trudeau uh and it it 's going to be a really interesting uh, uh, uh speech to watch for and remarks to watch for, especially as the United States uh, genie has unfortunately crossed such a harrowing uh, mark in the pandemic of 500,000 deaths, 500,000 deaths uh, since last March as a result of COVID-19.
1: And we haven't talked about it, but of course last night when President Biden and and Vice President Harris, I thought, was a very moving ceremony or memorial in honor of the people who have passed of COVID. And of course, as you talk about waiting to Hear from Biden and Trudeau in terms of their meeting, of course, via video conference because of the pandemic. Um, It's important to remember that Trudeau was the first leader to congratulate Biden. It seems like Canadians are really ready for a reset on this relationship. But, of course, and there's always a but is that Biden's first move or one of his early moves coming in, as we've talked about, was to cancel the Keystone Pipeline, which was something that has frustrated Canadians and certainly something Trudeau favored like Biden's predecessor, Trump. So it'll be interesting to see sort of how they come out of this meeting and sort of where their focus is going to be and whether Keystone is mentioned at all.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. I've got sound on this from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who made these remarks earlier today. And she was asked about, again, as you mentioned, his first bilateral uh, this afternoon with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. uh, And she was asked point blank, Jeannie, about the future of the Keystone Pipeline, uh, which, of course, stretches between the two countries. And here's the sound on that. The president made clear
2: that this is a commitment he's, he has made in the past, uh, that it's not in the interest of the United States, and that we want to try to address uh, our climate crisis while also creating
1: uh, good paying union jobs.
0: Jeannie, this is a very divisive issue in the United States, without question. Republicans have been very critical of the Biden administration for this uh, policy move. Even some centrist Democrats, and of course, the situation in Texas, albeit not, dire- albeit a different energy issue, somewhat uh, it, in a way, it's all been lumped together in the past two weeks.
1: It has, and and you know, Joe Biden has been saying he is his number one focus, in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. And yet for many people, they look at the steps he took on the Keystone Pipeline, and he, you know, he was explicit about why he did it. But they say, if your major concern is jobs, why would you cancel this contract, which cut jobs? And, you know, people, many Republicans, but also moderate Democrats, and I suspect people in Representative uh, Smith's uh, district in his state, find the answers they're getting from biden on that unacceptable and we heard them again in the clip you just played from jen Psaki.
0: let's bring back into the conversation travis norton who is a shareholder at brownstein hyatt farber and shrek and uh previously worked as a staff director to senator tim scott a republican from south carolina travis just how divisive is this issue the keystone pipeline from a geopolitical standpoint uh if between the u.s and canada
4: Well, I think it's uh, shaping up to be a highly divisive subject, uh, except that um, the former president was so divisive that I think many things will pale in comparison to the (laughs)
0: relationship. Touche.
4: But look, it it is, you know, to Jeannie's point, it is kind of a strange time to cancel it. This is. Hundreds or thousands of union jobs at a time when we need uh, more work in this country at a time when, uh, and, and what's crazy is that I think both parties agree uh, at, that at least in the medium term we need an all of the above energy strategy. Really the debate is about how quickly to get there and who's going to finance it. But uh, to cut, you know, to cut off Keystone uh, pipeline because you don't like oil at a time when uh, the Texas energy grid just suffered the massive Uh, problem that it did I think you know it's just it's just the wrong time and I think it uh, this decision should be reconsidered in light of an all-of-the-above energy strategy with a horizon that you know looks out several decades maybe a century into converting our energy future in this country
0: I I just got to be candid here the chairman of the Energy Committee is Senator Joe Manchin a Democrat from West Virginia you know I, I mean this is a centrist uh, he's already written to the Biden administration saying he disagrees with, the, with, the, with several of these policies. You've got centrist Democrats down in Texas who are who are uh, raising uh, alarms to the Biden administration in light of the the crisis that occurred there with regards to the the, the freeze and the, and the grid knockout. I mean, but the chairman of the energy Committee is not necessarily in lockstep uh, with the Biden administration here.
1: Absolutely not, and and you know it's it's you know very very true when we talk about Joe Manchin that he may be the most powerful person in, besides yeah. you, Kevin Surly, oh. in Washington D.C. I'm a nobody. Today. My parents and remind me of it daily.
0: <laughs> my, you know, my mother told me today. She goes, "I should have a radio show." I said, "All right, mom, <laughs> oh, go I ahead, Jeannie." It. <laughs> you
1: know, he, he, <laughs> I'd listen. You know, Besides you and your mother. He's the yeah. most powerful person in D.C. today. And, you know, we hear this consistently from, you know, Schumer, how much he needs to hang on. To, and it's not just Manchin. It's Tester. It's Cinema, It's some of these moderates. And that really is a question I have. And I would love to get Travis's thoughts on this is, you know, how does the Biden administration keep this coalition together? I, you know, I think one strategy has been to try to go public and pressure them um, on the the back end through constituents but i'm not sure that's going to work in some of these cases
4: yeah i think uh, i think that's right um, but the other mechanism that they are bringing back which we haven't seen in a decade is the return of the congressional earmark mm-hmm. uh, earmark mm-hmm. referring to a line in a spending bill that directs money to a member of congress's specific district or a senator state uh, you'll recall that these were a powerful tool for the leadership in both the senate and the house to keep their caucus together in uh, votes like the Affordable Care Act and the American Recovery Act uh, in 2008. Uh, they disappeared when the Tea Party Republicans took over the House in 2011, but Speaker Pelosi is bringing them back. Uh, her margin in the House is the thinnest Democratic margin that there's been since World War II, and obviously the Senate is evenly divided, so the leadership, Leader Schumer, Speaker Pelosi are going to bring back ear, earmarks to try to dangle uh, prizes in front of their membership in order to keep them in line.
0: And
1: you're just making me think, Travis, it's such a good point about earmarks is, you know, at some point you wonder if we do get a presidential veto back ever. I understand the Supreme Court may not be happy about that, but there there are ways around these things, but many of them have gone by the wayside.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the the only tool that a speaker really has right now uh, to control his or her caucus is committee assignments. Um, but we've seen even that erode. I mean, you saw the Republican leader uh, Well, you saw the House publicly uh, remove Marjorie Taylor Greene, congresswoman from Georgia, off of her spot on the Education and Labor Committee in the House. She went to Twitter and celebrated that for about three days. So Uh, in an era where committee assignments matter uh, little to a a lot of people uh, and where um, members of congress and senators have national fundraising apparatuses in place and don't necessarily need to bring home the bacon to their district uh, i think you're absolutely right that um uh, you know, the tools right now are limited, and I think earmarks will give the leadership in both houses uh, a much stronger control over their uh, over their members.
0: Travis, you can come back on anytime you want to get wonky and nerdy with us. We really appreciate your insights and your time. Uh, that's uh, Travis uh, Norton, everybody. And uh, February is Black History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is celebrating pivotal moments in the U.S. Black history each day. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Janita Young. On this day in Black history in 1979, Frank E. Peterson Jr. is named the first Black general in the U.S. Marine Corps. He was determined to serve his country despite racial discrimination. Peterson first attempted to join the U.S. Navy, but was asked to take the entrance exam over because administrators believed he had cheated. In 1950, Peterson enlisted in the Navy and two years later as a Marine, he completed flight school and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Peterson went on to become the Marine's first Black aviator and served as as Commanding General for the Marine Corps Combat Development Command. Throughout his career, Peterson received several military awards, among them the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, and the Purple Heart. So in 1988, Peterson retired as Lieutenant General after serving as Special Assistant to the Chief of Staff. That's today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for me and Cheney Shanzano. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg.